Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. A group of international billionaires who don't like democracy, they don't like business regulation because it reduces their profits, and they don't like the idea of a functioning multicultural, multiracial nation. If they hired somebody specifically to destroy the United States, to throw us back into the worst parts of our past, to exacerbate our tensions, to make this country a more miserable place, to kill as many Americans as possible, to do as much damage that will last for decades to the American economy, they couldn't have done a better job than hiring Donald Trump. Americans are dying from a pandemic disease at rates that we haven't seen in a hundred years, while other countries have it under control. A handful of Trump-connected lobbyists have pulled in over $10 billion for their clients in a stunning example of how he has completely corrupted our federal agencies, virtually all of which are under the control specifically of lobbyists who Trump put in charge of these federal agencies. And of course, the white racists are on the rise. They're having their movement, the Boogaloo Boys and the whole, the whole bunch of them killing protesters, tearing down statues. Over the weekend, they tore down a statue of Frederick Douglass. You know, as most Americans are watching this freak show of Republican governance, capital R Republican governance, a, a, you know, with horror, there's a small group of American billionaires, and I would say international billionaires, the billionaires who helped put Donald Trump in office. They come from Saudi Arabia, they come from Israel, they come from Russia, they come from China. Seth Abramson's done a great job of uh, compiling the list over in his book of uh, Proof of Conspiracy. Uh, they're just, you know, they're, they're happy, happy. Billionaire Rupert Murdoch. It has his Fox News network running overtime, pumping out racist memes, phony outrage. The right-wing billionaires who fund Freedom Works and other such groups are pushing hard to end unemployment and other benefits so Americans are forced to return to work, even when it means getting sick and dying. Down in Brazil, President Jair Bolsonaro today or yesterday vetoed legislation that would have provided masks, free masks, to people, poor people living in the slums of Brazil. Well, at least they had a policy to provide everybody with a mask. The Trump administration won't even talk about that. I mean, the policy never got put into place because Bolsonaro vetoed it, but psh, 
But ever since April 6th, when The Washington Post, The New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, right across the board, April 6th, everybody reported the breaking story that black people were dying and Hispanics were dying at about twice the rate of white people from COVID-19. Ever since, well, it, was, it took a day or two for them to digest it. So it was really April 8th and April 9th. But if you go back and look at the news stories, what you see, and you can see this in the, in the you know, if you subscribe to the New York Times or the Washington Post, any of these papers, just where, you know, you can go back and look at their archives. You will see that it was in the days immediately following April 6th. I pointed this out on this program. I said, this is going to happen. On April 7th, I was talking about, this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, within a day or two, it did. April 8th, April 9th, all of a sudden, you had the groups supported by the right-wing billionaires, you had the right-wing media, right-wing hate radio. All of a sudden, it's, oh, it's just a common cold. It's just a flu. We need to go back to work. We need to open the country back up. And, uh, you know, the, the Trump administration basically is working as hard as they can to expand infections. They're even using the force of the federal government to require the largely Hispanic and black workers, about half of them Hispanic, a little over a quarter of them Hispanic, uh, uh, black, excuse me, uh, in the meat processing plants to return to work. The Defense Production Act, you must go back to work. You know, we Americans have gotten quite used to Republicans and their billionaire buddies stealing from us and ripping us off. It's been going on since the 1980s, since the Reagan, the Reagan revolution. That was where it really all began. Crushing unions, destroying competition through monopoly. Uh, you know, uh, Walmart went from, you know, 100% made in the USA, Sam Walton's original slogan, to, you know, 100% made in China during the, the 12 years of the Reagan-Bush administration. And now it's a standard way of life in this country. We've been ripped up by Republicans and their billionaire buddies. But now, unless you're wealthy enough to safely and comfortably shelter in place, Republicans and their billionaire buddies are openly encouraging the death of more and more Americans. Back in the 1920s, Herbert Hoover ignored the crash in 1929. And therefore, the Republican Great Depression continued for three long years, leading to massive wreckage including economic damage and torn apart families that echoed through our nation for generations. My mother's family lost everything in the Great Depression. And her mother never, never recovered. Her father had a heart attack. And frankly, she never recovered from that. The Trump Depression and over 100,000 unnecessary deaths show us that a president who is not only incompetent, but also openly malicious can do even more damage than Herbert Hoover. And Republicans across the country still support him as billionaire-owned and supported media continues to own, pump out a steady stream of pro-Trump propaganda. The Supreme Court handed these white racist billionaires the sword that they're now using against you and me in their Citizens United decision and the ones that preceded it. And if we don't get money out of politics, and if we don't vote every single Republican out of office at all levels, all the way down to dog catcher, this effort to tear America apart and kill more low-income and minority Americans will continue. Anything else is just putting a Band-Aid on cancer. You can find my uh, thoughts on this over at buzzflash.com this morning.
Can Americans stop the Republican Party and their billionaire lifeline before another 100,000 die? What do you think? You think we can do it? I'm getting hopeful, actually. Although, as I said, the damage that Trump and his billionaire buddies have done, particularly to Gen Z, is going to last for a long, long time. So on the one hand, we've got a whole bunch of people in the United States who are very concerned that they don't want to die. They don't want to get a virus that's going to cause them a lifetime of stroke or dementia or kidney damage or liver damage or heart damage or brain damage or, I mean, fill in the blanks, right? Lung damage. And on the other hand, you've got these emails that I'm continuously getting from FreedomWorks, the group that the Kochs helped start and that, you know, brought us the Tea Party saying, uh, you know, Thomas, it's time to open the country. <laughs> Just going on and on and on about this kind of thing. And it, how do we do this? What do we do? Where are the standards? Why is it that every other country in the world has standards for, you know, what schools should do if they're going to open, what businesses should do if they're going to open? Remington Gregg is on the line with us. He's the Council for Civil Justice and Consumer Rights at Public Citizen. Citizen.org is the website. Remington, welcome to the program. Tell us your thoughts on, we've got workers in the food supply, we've got teachers. Let's start there. Well, it's good to be here. You know, Mitch McConnell and Republicans are saying that, yes, we need to open up the economy. We're doing it fast. We're doing it uh, pretty unsafely. And while also doing that, they want to immunize businesses from coronavirus-related lawsuits, meaning that if you are a worker, if you are a consumer, and a business took unreasonable, unsafe practices, conduct, and you contracted coronavirus and either got sick or died, they want to immunize those businesses from being able to sue. It's pretty amazing, the, just the, the breadth and the scope of this type of proposal. I just got an email from Adam Brandon, who is the big cheese over at FreedomWorks, you know, the thing that brought us the Tea Party and Coke Brothers, and it says my name, and then lockdown leftists are looking for any excuse to reinstate their economically devastating lockdown order, and the fake news media is doing everything they can to give them one, even though the coronavirus mortality rate keeps declining. Don't let them get away with it. That's in all caps with an exclamation mark. Please send your governor a message. Tell them to do everything they can to protect our most vulnerable citizens and, in all caps, keep America open. The fake news media has done nothing but praise Governor Andrew Cuomo for his draconian lockdown measures. But what they always fail to report is that Cuomo's own survey found that 66% of hospitalized patients were literally at home when they got infected. This, you know, and then goes on from here. I mean, how in the face of this you know, when FreedomWorks is saying this, you know, that the billionaires and all the business groups are basically promoting this. How do we push back against this? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're doing it for a very simple reason. It's profits. They want to open up. They want to be able to force workers back. Because remember, once businesses reopen, you can no longer stay on unemployment. So you have to then make a choice, either go back to an unsafe workplace or lose your job. And what we're seeing, I mean, let's just put to the side all of the people who have been getting sick because they were at amusement parks and rallies and all these sorts of things. Let's look at the meatpacking plants, which have a rise in infection rates. Let's look at nursing homes. More than 40% of all coronavirus-related deaths are from workers and from residents in nursing homes. So it's clear that we are not keeping these spaces safe. So what we have to do is obviously, number one, 
push back and push back against Mitch McConnell and Republicans who are saying that this is the only way to open. Number two, we have to ensure that we are doing what we can to keep these workplaces safe, to ensure that they are, if we are in a workplace, that they are following health guidelines and simply just making your voice heard. It has to be, you have to make your voice heard because if you do this, if Republicans get their wish and they're able to do this, this would paper over the laws of all 50 states. This would be a federal way of removing all state laws related to negligence claims and claims that you bring to keep workplaces and workspaces safe. Yeah. And the liability issue is a big one, but there's this larger issue of basically libertarians love to say that they're opposed to government force or they're opposed to force in all forms. Right. But if I'm a low wage worker and I am living literally paycheck to paycheck and I'm looking at the possibility of eviction and homelessness and I'm having a hard time buying groceries and I certainly can't afford pharmaceuticals or even gas for the car right now. And the one employer who I have a relationship with who's willing to bring me back to work and give me another paycheck says, I'm not going to make it any safer for you working in this uh, retail environment or working in this factory or whatever it may be. You know, it's just going to be the way it's always been. But if you don't come back, I'm going to challenge your unemployment claim and you're going to lose everything. I mean, how is that not force? And why is there no, well, I get why there's no federal protection. You know, the billionaires basically own the show. But how do Republicans think that they can survive politically, continuing to force people back into the workplace when that means sickness? And and let me expand that to schools. I mean, you've got a lot of teachers who are not in their 20s anymore and are looking at going back to school where, yeah, the kids are not going to, you know, I mean, the percentage of kids who get really, really sick with this uh, syndrome, this Kawasaki syndrome kind of disease is quite small, but they're contagious little buggers. (laughs) What do we do? Well, that's a good question. And it's amazing that Republicans continue to push such unpopular policies. And one of the reasons why they do that is because the Chamber of Commerce is very, very powerful and has a lot of money, and this is what they want. They're actually using a pandemic to get what they want. They're using the pandemic as a hook to do what their main organizational goal is to do, which is to limit your access to justice, access to the court system, ability to hold companies accountable. And when we talk about this, I'm very clear when I talk about this, it's important for workers, it's important for consumers, but this is a civil rights issue as well. This is a gender justice issue, it's a racial justice issue, because we are reopening the economy on the backs of black and brown workers who already are disproportionately impacted by coronavirus. They are dying more, and for all of us who are staying home. And if you continue to reopen the economy and you immunize businesses, there will be even more sickness, even more depth, and it's not white middle-class America who will be dealing with this, it will be black and brown people. And if we are serious about and talking women. about race and women, yes, exactly, who make I up mean, a large percentage of teachers, uh, health care type. Exactly. So we have to talk yeah. about this broadly, racial justice, gender justice, and how we fulfill the promises of equality. Yeah. And so how do we do that? You want to say to Mitch McConnell, we oppose this. You want to say to Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, stay strong, don't immunize businesses, and just keep fighting. So speak out. 
Call 202-225-3121 and yell at your congressperson. <laughs> Respectfully, of course. I get it. Remington Gregg, the Council for Civil Justice and Consumer Rights over at Public Citizen, Citizen.org. Remington, thanks so much for dropping by. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Along with us is Chloe Waterman, the program manager of Friends of the Earth. FOE.org is the website. FOE underscore US is their Twitter handle. Chloe, welcome to the program. I, I understand that Friends of the Earth is joining with 120 other groups for specific actions, a week of action against Tyson Foods. Tell us about this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is an exciting week to see so many allies across different sectors, environmental groups, labor groups, animal welfare, band together to address the horrific treatment of workers that Tyson has had during COVID-19. The jobs in these slaughterhouses are, even before COVID, are among the most dangerous jobs in the country. But during COVID, it's just been a catastrophe. As of today, I just checked and there's 34,000 workers at meatpacking plants who have tested positive for COVID. More than 140 people have died. And Tyson is responsible for a large number of those, double the rate of any other meatpacking company. So they really need the public to pay attention and call on them to create a safe workplace for employees. When Trump invoked the Defense Production Act and basically forced workers to go back into these plants, I know some of them were shut down. Some of them were even trying to retrofit in ways that might protect some of the workers, and they abandoned that because Trump said, you've got to go back now. Did that provide a limitation of liability for these companies so that they can't be sued by the families of their dead employees? Well, that's exactly why the companies lobbied Trump to issue that executive order. But if you actually read the executive order, it has limited power. And these companies absolutely have the choice and can shut down their operations when they have positive COVID cases in them. Also, the reason for Trump's executive order claiming that we need this because there's going to be a meat shortage in the country, it's a complete farce. He did it completely to protect the bottom lines of these companies. Our stores for chicken and beef are the same as they were during this time last year, our cold storage and for pork, they're down only slightly. There's really no reason that these plants need to be kept open without protecting workers. I understand the largest pork producer in the country, Smithfield Foods, is actually owned by the Chinese and that when Trump forced them to go back to work, and I put that in quotes because you're right, they asked him to do it, that they exported, as I recall, thousands of tons or tens of thousands of tons of pork to China. I mean, it wasn't even, this was not even to supply the U.S. market. The reason why the Chinese bought the largest pork producer in the United States, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, please, was to provide pork to the Chinese marketplace. Do I have that right? You have that right, Tom, and it just goes to show that it's just a lie that we need to keep these plants open to protect our food supply. Elizabeth Warren and Cory Buffer senators issued an inquiry into this exact fact. Why are you claiming that we need to do this to protect America when we're, in fact, putting the lives of our workers in danger only to export this meat to China? You know, it seems like there's even a larger issue here. I mean, yes, it just maybe this is a bit of a digression, but um, when Canada discovered that they had all this 
the, these coal sands, the, you know, the, the tar sands up there. This is insanely poisonous oil or a form of, it's like a sludge. And refining it throws into the air and leaves behind giant piles of insanely toxic stuff. And the Canadians said, we're not going to allow anybody to refine this into gasoline or diesel fuel in Canada. So what did we do? Well, the Koch brothers have a refinery down in Texas that takes Venezuelan oil, which is just slightly lighter, and processes that. So we'll build a pipeline down here and Americans get the poison, Americans get the pollution, and the refinery is exporting the gasoline and diesel fuel to other countries, including China. So Canada gets the money from the sale of the tar sands, China gets the oil and the gasoline, and we get the poison. I'm seeing the same thing happen with meat production. The Chinese don't want the giant waste pools that come from factory farms with pigs. They don't want poisoning of the groundwater. They don't want the poisoning of the local people. They don't want the spread of you know, antibiotic-resistant bacteria as a result of these giant operations you know, contaminating the rest of their food supply. And so we send them the nicely you know, cut and disinfected meat and we keep the poison here. Does this make sense what I'm suggesting here that this is, you know, somebody has sold out America to the world and in these two cases, and I'm guessing there's dozens of others, we get the poison, somebody else gets the product and somebody else gets the money. That's quite an analogous scenario. I mean, and you hit on a crucial point there too, Tom, which is that their whole model, Tyson's model, Smithfield's model, it's built on exploitation at every stage. And you mentioned the pig waste lagoons, whether it's pork, chicken, or beef, near these plants and near the factory farms, the communities that live there are just decimated with the toxic pollution that comes out of these. And then in the communities where these animals are slaughtered right now, that's where they're being hit by COVID. It's not just the workers. They're going back into their communities These workers are mostly people of color and immigrants, and they're going back to their communities, and it's spreading even more. Tyson and Smithfield exploit everyone along the supply chain. The workers are one example that happened long before COVID. The animals are another. The local communities, their contract growers, everyone is exploited at this. And, And eaters, people who are buying this at the grocery store, the stores, Walmart and Costco that are purchasing Tyson Foods, the the food service corporations like Aramark, they are all complicit in this exploitative supply chain. And we're seeing right now just how exploitative it is, just how little these companies care about their workers during COVID. Right. And kind of have to be an old fart like me to remember this. But back in the 60s, my wife's father, one of his favorite things was steak tartare, which was literally raw beef. And he used to put an egg in a glass of orange juice every morning and stick it in the blender and drink that for his breakfast. You can't do that anymore because of factory farms spreading bacteria that have mutated you know, into, into virulent forms that literally didn't exist in the late 50s and early 60s, or even through the 70s, I believe. It's like it has completely changed. So people are buying these products at the supermarket, bringing them home. They're covered with salmonella and E. coli. They put them on their kitchen counter. And even if they cook the food, they want, you know, and then they prepare their lettuce on the same counter and they wonder why they're, they're getting sometimes mild, sometimes severe cases of food poisoning. It's like we're being poisoned even in our own kitchens. It's insane. Tell me about the groups, Chloe. Uh, We're talking with Chloe Waterman, the program manager at Friends of the Earth. Tell me about the groups. We have just a minute to the break. Tell me about the groups engaged in this week of action. 
Absolutely. Well, we're really following the lead of a group that I want to highlight that's been doing amazing work on the ground in Arkansas, Tyson's home state, Vince Ramos. They have been fighting for protections for from Tyson since even before the start of COVID, but since the beginning of it. But they haven't gotten the changes that we need to see from Tyson. So they reached out to allies from environmental groups like us. So we have Greenpeace, NRDC, Union of Concerned Scientists involved. We have animal welfare groups like the ASPCA and the Humane League, food chain groups, the Food Chain Workers Alliance, more than 150 groups across all sectors. Because this issue is so timely, it is so urgent. If Tyson doesn't change, their practices, workers will continue to die. How can the average person participate? Two ways. I think we need to target Tyson and hold them accountable. Users can visit foe.org backslash Tyson. And users can call their senators and demand that the Senate require OSHA to issue mandatory worker protection. There you go. Chloe Waterman, Program Manager with Friends of the Earth, foe.org. Check it out. And thank you, Chloe. Thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So America has become the dumping ground for toxic waste. Donald Trump wants to... What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. To make us the dumping ground for viruses in our schools. My 
my old buddy, Dr. Michael Mann is with us, the distinguished professor of meteorology, the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, member of the National Academy of Sciences, the author of numerous books, including The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy, recipient of the Tyler Prize. His website, Michael Mann with two N's, dot net, and you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann with two N's. Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. It's always so good to have you with us. Please describe to us the difference over the years in these predictive models that have to do with climate change and how we can expect our atmosphere to respond to the constant barrage of carbon that we're throwing into it. The models that we use to project or predict future climate changes have been vetted for decades now, and we have seen various sorts of exercises and tests of their validity that they have passed with flying colors. They are able to reproduce quite well the warming that we've seen in recent decades and many of the other changes in climate that we're seeing as a result of that warming. So there's reason to take them quite seriously. Now, there is sort of a spread. Not all climate models predict exactly the same amount of warming as we continue to burn fossil fuels and elevate the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And that's because different models make different assumptions, for example, about the role of phenomena like clouds that are very small compared to the scales that these models are run at. And so they're difficult to resolve. Individual clouds are difficult to resolve in a climate model. And so you have to make certain types of physically-based assumptions about, for example, how clouds change in a warming world. And different climate modeling groups make slightly different assumptions that are consistent with the evidence, and they come up with different amounts of warming. So there's a spread. And, And currently, what those models tell us is that if we continue with business as usual, that we don't curtail our burning of fossil fuels, we don't transition from fossil fuel burning to renewable energy and decarbonize our civilization, we'll probably see somewhere between three and four degrees Celsius So we're talking, you know, six, seven degrees of Fahrenheit warming of the planet by the end of the century. But there's a range. There's some uncertainty, as we just discussed. So the new models seem to be projecting far more extreme warning than the models were five and ten years ago. Why is that and what are they predicting? Yeah, so it's interesting. In the latest assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, and these assessments are based on the results in part of climate modeling efforts by groups around the world, and there are more than 50 different climate models that are run by different groups. And so they come up with some spread of the estimated warming, the estimated impacts of climate change from these different models. And what we're seeing in the latest assessment is the models almost fall into two groups. One group that looks sort of like the past generation of climate models will probably see somewhere in the range of three degrees Celsius, five and a half degrees Fahrenheit warming of the planet if we double the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That's how much warming we'll expect if we double the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. And we've got a fancy term for that that's called the climate sensitivity. And most models say if you double CO2 concentrations relative to pre-industrial levels and given business as usual will be there sometime later this century. Most of the models say you probably get about three degrees Celsius warming for that. But there are some models that say, well, no, it might be more like four or even five degrees 
And in the latest assessment, there are more models that sort of lean towards those higher numbers. And that has to do, for example, like we just talked about earlier, with how the different models treat clouds. Clouds, the behavior of clouds in a warming climate is a very important uncertainty. And depending on the assumptions you make, there are different reasonable assumptions that different modeling groups make. You come up with a different number. How much does the effect of clouds add to the warming? Different groups come up with different estimates of that. And so some of the groups are saying, you know, that climate sensitivity might be closer to four or five degrees Celsius based on the results that they're getting. Now, here's the thing, Tom. There are other independent constraints. There are various lines of evidence that allow us to sort of assess which climate models are more consistent with the available evidence, with past climates 100 million years ago when dinosaurs roamed the planet and the climate was warmer and there were higher CO2 concentrations. We can look at that evidence. We can look at how much the models cool in response to a big volcanic eruption. And there are lots of different ways that we can look at the climate models and sort of compare them with different types of observations and get a sense of which models seem to be most faithful to the real world. Those sorts of tests seem right now to be pointing towards the lower models, the conventional models, let's say you get about three degrees Celsius for CO2, but two doubling. Most of the evidence seems to say that those models are sort of closer to reality than these newer models that are suggesting more warming. But here's the thing. We can't rule out these new climate model simulations. We can't rule out the possibility that the warming will be more than sort of the conventional estimates have suggested. And that points to the fact that we are making decisions in the face of uncertainty. Yes, there is uncertainty here, but it's not our friend. The uncertainties are such that they tell us that the warming could potentially be quite a bit more than the climate models have been telling us. It's all the more reason to take concerted action now. To say the very least, what kind of effects we're seeing, obviously, worse storms, worse droughts, all these kind of, you know, the extremes of weather becoming more extreme. But I'm catching these news stories about the, the Siberian permafrost being on fire and, and uh, you know, problems in northern Canada with the permafrost going and wiping out indigenous communities and things. How far along are we? How rapidly? What can we expect to see when? What do the next 10 or 20 years bring in your guess, Dr. Mann? Yeah, you know, when temperatures are warmer in Siberia than they are in Florida, uh, you know it's time to start worrying. And there is indeed plenty of reason to worry that we're already seeing dangerous climate change impacts. We see them, you know, in our daily newspaper headlines on our television screens, the wildfires in Siberia, the devastating heat waves here in the United States, unprecedented flooding events and superstorms. We're seeing the damaging impacts of climate change play out. And so the very best of scenarios, if we take concerted action now, we can prevent things from getting worse, but we're already stuck with the negative impact that we're facing. You know, given the impacts we're seeing now, it's reasonable to imagine that we can sort of develop the infrastructure that we have, the resilience to deal with the impacts that are already locked in. But if we don't act now and the warming gets greater and more of the ice melts and sea levels start to accelerate and these devastating weather extremes become more common and more profound, well, then pretty soon we're going to exceed our adaptive capacity as a species. And so what this tells us is dangerous climate change has already arrived now. We're seeing it play out. And it's simply a question of how bad we're willing to let it get. There is urgency, but as I like to say, there is agency. There is still time. Dr. Michael Mann at michaelmann.net. Dr. Mann, thank you so much for dropping by today. Great talking with you. Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure. 
That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.